Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Now, the creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. continuing story of our band of heroes. Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains, They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. A galactic odyssey against oppression. sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Family Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me for this episode is my podcasting life partner, the irredeemable Shag. Shag, how are you doing? Hello, Robert. It's a pleasure to be on your show, and it's very exciting for me to be podcasting with you for the very first time. Great. We're doing bits. That's wonderful. Um, <laughs> You're on episode 20, man. 20 friggin' episodes, and you just now get around to inviting me. Yeah, really. Okay. I'll remember this. All right. Let's move on. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, Shag is finally on the show because he specifically asked to talk about this particular movie. He threatened me and said, until I cover, unless, if I don't cover this movie, you know, if I ever cover this movie, he wants to be on. So, Let's talk about it. Gem and the Holograms. I mean, I'm as surprised as you, everybody, that, that, that Shag requested this, but let's go through with it. Shag, why I've, is Gem and the Holograms your favorite movie? I've got a nine-year-old daughter. I mean, come on. <laughs> and I grew up in the 80s, so we're just naturally programmed. And she gets the comic from IDW. There you go. See, and you said you didn't want to do bits. See, I can act. Look at me. Uh, perfect. <laughs> so, no, of course, we are in the middle of our countdown or the journey or whatever you want to call it, whatever marketing-proof language you want, to the <laughs> Force Awakens, which is now... Little more than two weeks, not less than two weeks away. Unbelievable. Never thought it would get here. So he said last week, of course, we I had Michael Bailey on to talk about Star Wars. This week we were talking about The Empire Strikes Back, which, as far as I know, Shag, is your all time favorite movie. Is that right? Well, out of all the movies you've covered, it's the only one I've seen. Okay. Um, no, yes, it is. And I have said this since probably the early 90s, maybe even to the late 80s, Empire Strikes Back is my favorite movie of all time. Is it the best movie I've ever seen, you know, cinematically and videography and all that stuff? Probably not, but it is my favorite movie. 
when I get sick, when I get a cold, when I have the flu, this is going on. Whether it's the old VHS I recorded off Showtime, or it's the VHS I bought, or the other special edition VHS, or the one right before the special edition VHS, or the DVD, or the other DVD that's got the original, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I have owned this film myself in at least three different formats. I'd try, four, you know, four different formats, actually. You talked about that last time. That's true. Yeah, LaserDisc, VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. Yep. No, I don't have the Blu-rays. Wait, I take it back. I don't own the Blu-rays yet because I only watch the regular non-messed-with editions, and those are the still ones that I watch. But anyway, so, yeah, Shag, what, like, what is your history with this movie? When did you first see it? What's, what was the, what's your whole deal? Well, I saw it in the theater, obviously, uh, because I'm really freaking old. But, like, I know, I know I saw Star Wars, A New Hope, in the theater, but I don't really remember it. It's like, uh, Star Wars is, I know there was a time before Star Wars, but I saw it when I was five, so I don't really remember it. Empire, I vividly remember actually going to the theater. I remember the excitement of it. I saw it five times in the theater, uh, which back then was a big deal for my family. We never saw movies multiple times. I, I have one very vivid memory of my mother and I. We, we had to go to Michigan for the summer, and we actually walked two miles to the local movie theater. Wow. There's no reason we couldn't have took the car. I just decided it was a nice day, and so we did it. We walked the two miles and saw the movie, and that, like, for some reason, that's my favorite viewing of the film ever because it was a special trip for me and my mom, and um, it just gets to me. I, as to why it's my favorite movie, I, I can't tell you other than it just it was at the right time. You know, I mean, it was, it was eight years old. That's the perfect time to see a Star Wars movie, yes, right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, in some ways, I think I've always been an expanded universe guy. I love the Star Wars expanded universe. I've read something like 60 of the novels. I've read, over, I counted up one day like 350 of the comics. I mean, I got tons of action figures, tons of this stuff, right? And for some reason, I do love the expanded universe. And Empire Strikes Back is sort of like the ultimate first expanded universe thing in the Star Wars saga. Because I know we had Splinters of the Mind's Eye. I know we had the comics. But, but this was like the first spinoff, really, that was legit. And, and maybe that's part of my excitement for it because it was the next chapter, and that's what was so exciting about it. And I, I, to this day, I still get excited. I, I watched it recently. Yeah, you know, I, I just yeah, I just watched it yesterday uh, over again. It just I don't know why. I mean, it's not like I don't know it, but yeah, and it's uh, amazing. It, it just it never gets old. For me, I, like my my fandoms travel in four circles, and, and it's sort of like rinse repeat after each one. It's like I, I'm into comics for a while, then I, I go through a comics phase, then I go through a Star Trek phase with like old Kirk movies and stuff like that, then I go through a Doctor Who phase, and then I go through a Star Wars phase, and it's just rinse and repeat back and just keep going through them. And definitely in a Star Wars phase right now. I blame you partially. Why? Because you got me. You we did that Star Wars episode of the of the Fire and Water podcast. And um, it got me all jazzed up about Star Wars again. I was kind of like, yeah, okay, the new movie's probably going to be good. And now I'm totally in. Yeah, well, it's not my fault. I mean, Disney's doing it, for God's sake. No, it has nothing to do with Disney's marketing. It has entirely to do with Rob Kelly. Nice. I like it. Good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, this, for my my money, I saw it pretty much when it came out. I saw it with my dad and my sister. I remember seeing it, you know, and the, the lobby was absolutely packed. And I think there was even, like, a thing where people were, like, yelling at people walking out of the theater not to say anything or something like Jeez. that. I don't know if that might be my faulty memory because I don't think anybody necessarily at the time thought there would be anything to spoil. You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. wasn't like this was – this is pre – God, pre-internet. My God, this is practically pre-cars. And, like, nobody knew <laughs> that there was some big thing. So uh, I may be remembering that incorrectly. Um, but I, I remember seeing it at least – Twice I saw it again with my dad and my sister, and then I saw it at a at a theater that um, 
it was this giant old-timey theater. It's in the next town over from here called Haddonfield, which is actually where Steven Spielberg is from. Oh. And yeah, and uh, I it was an, it's an amazing theater. It had a balcony. Uh, I actually saw Superman 2 there as well, which was amazing. It was a great theater. And the theater is still there. It's closed down. And it's just an empty building. And I've always told myself if I ever became a millionaire, I would buy it and turn it back into a movie theater. Because every time I drive by it and I see that marquee with nothing on it, it just makes me sad. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I saw Empire. So I saw it at least twice. And I remember – and I've mentioned this on I think our Fire and Water Star Wars episodes. I remember seeing Star Wars when it was re-released in 79. And at the end of Star Wars, they had a scene from Empire. Oh really? They, and it was the 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 uh, Darth Vader and Boba Fett on Bespin scene, and you know the whole and that I talk about I, the welcome to dinner yeah, scene. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I made a deal that'll you know they mm-hmm. open the door and whatever, and like it was the most excited I've been in my life, probably still to this day because it just was, you know this was pre again pre internet pre anything. I didn't know there was new Star Wars until I saw this, you know, and it was just blew my mind of like, who's that guy? You know, who's the guy in the helmet? Who's that guy? You know, it was just the most exciting thing I'd ever seen. And the fact that they waited until playing it after the movie just sort of made it even more exciting. It was just, you know. I'm just because 79 was the first time they put um, or was it 78 had a new hope ep- uh, episode for a new hope on it. And I'm just envisioning, you know, little Rob Kelly in the theater and it says, you know, it's a Star Wars. And then it says episode four, new hope. And you're like. WTF? Yeah, what? what? Yeah, what is all this? Well, that, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I, I talked about this in the previous episode with Mike uh, about one of the great things about Star Wars is all the little details that it throws in that lets you know that this world has existed long before the movie has started. And Empire, of course, does that as well, but it has the previous film to build upon. Uh, I mean, like, one of the first mention, mentions in the movie of an adventure we didn't see yes. is Harrison Ford. Is Harrison Ford. Han Solo, same thing, is when uh, he says that bounty hunter we ran into on Ord Mandel changed my mind. And I remember, wait, what? What's that? And even though there was the Star Wars comics, I still sort of, like, bifurcated them in my mind as, like, a separate thing. But I just remember thinking, what's that story? I don't know what right. that story is. And it, it, I, that line still gets me to this day of just like, that's an adventure that I'm sure they've told in some book at this point. But just the idea that, hey, these people have all been having adventures in the three years since the last movie. Uh, you know, what's that? It was just so exciting. Well, it's not just you. The whole Star Wars community loves that line. Yeah. That line gets everyone energized. And you're right. Not only have they told that in Star Wars comics or books, or whatever, it's probably been covered 18 different ways. Probably, yeah. Because that one line does the same has the same exact reaction for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's sort of like when Vader's talking to Fett, and it, you get a clear indication that Vader knows Fett, that there's a previous relationship there. And you're like, why do they know each other? Why is Vader <laughs> a hard ass on this guy? Wow, what's no the story? Relations. I mean, Fett in this film, and we're maybe we're jumping ahead here, but he's another good example of a character that walks on the screen, and it's obvious he has a history, and he's a badass, and he does nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but just his presence and the way they play him off, it tells you, gives you all the cues you need to know to go, man, this guy's got a history. And I want to know what it is. And to this day, we still try and find out, and we can ignore the prequels. Yes. It's pointed out in the Star Wars, How Star Wars Conquer the Universe book that you could take every line of dialogue Boba Fett has from both movies and fit them in one tweet. 
and still have room, <laughs> still have room for accreditation. <laughs> That's hilarious. Does not talk very much. Uh, yeah, as Shag said, we're jumping ahead a little. I want to go back and just give. I'm not going to detail the plot. Everybody knows the plot. <laughs> what happens in the movie? Yeah, what happens in the movie? But I, I will give a little bit of background as to the creation of it. And everyone, again, anyone who follows Star Wars to this level that's listening to this knows that Lucas made a sweetheart of a deal for the merchandising because he ended up getting a large chunk of the merchandising money because nobody at 20th Century Fox thought the merchandising rights were worth anything. The other thing that Lucas was able to do in his contract, which was ended up being incredibly fortuitous, is that he had a deal with Fox that said if he makes a sequel – by 19 if he puts a sequel into production by 1979 he's going to end up owning the vast chunk of it so he was motivated to get the sequel into production as soon as possible and when star wars was the mega hit that it was he pushed on ahead and you know had he waited had he waited a little too long fox would have ended up owning much more of empire strikes back than they did and as much as star wars made lucas a very wealthy man empire made him it turned him, it turned his thing into forgive the pun an empire. I mean, he made so much money from Empire because he owned such a large chunk of it, and he initially uh, he had a really difficult time writing Star Wars. It was apparently an incredibly painful process, full of tons of drafts and journal the wills and all that nonsense. Uh, he decided to outsource it uh, this time, and he hired a uh, longtime Hollywood screenwriter Lee Brackett who had an amazing career. She wrote Rio Bravo. She wrote To Have and Have Not. Uh, she wrote El Dorado. She, she's written, she wrote dozens of legendary films from the golden age of Hollywood to write the screenplay. Now, why he picked Lee Brackett, I don't know. She didn't have any real background in sci-fi. And if you've ever read her version of the script, she clearly has no idea what she's doing because it's an, the, her Empire script is a fantasy script. I mean, there's just way more wizards and crazy magic, and it just it feels completely unmoored from the Star Wars that we know. Um, but Lucas apparently got the script, realized it was unworkable, and decided, okay, I'm going to have to write this all myself. And to his eternal credit, he left her on – he left her with credit. Mm. That, and, and if you, you know, watch Empire Strikes Back, it's his story by Lee Brackett, even though she really doesn't deserve that credit. But he was such a fan of hers that he wanted her to have credit, uh, especially since she died not too long after completing it. And so it was like a nice tribute to her that her last screenplay credit is The Empire Strikes Back, um, which, again, reminds us all George Lucas is, for all of his faults, a really nice guy. <laughs> I mean, he's a really I- nice guy. I don't think most of us had problems with him until about 1997. Well, right. I mean, he's gotten a lot of crap since then. But, I mean, it's like you read more and more stuff about him. Another thing about Empire that, that again, we're jumping ahead. When if when Empire turned out to be the, the, the gold mine that it was, he distributed over $5 million in bonuses to his employees. Wow. That's that's a nice guy. You know, that's a really nice guy. So he, he was very, said, he was very generous with, with credit. And so after he ended up, writing some of the screenplay, he handed it over to uh, a new figure in the Star Wars universe, Lawrence Kasdan, <laughs> who had just finished the screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark, which everyone thought was impressive, which was correct. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, it ended up being that Lawrence Kasdan wrote, basically broke the back of Empire Strikes Back and turned it into the nearly indestructible screenplay that it became. I mean, So I have, a, I have a question. I want to take us back a second on yeah. the distribution. Now, I, and I'm going to show a little bit of ignorance here because I don't know all the the background stuff as much with Star Wars. 
is it technically a 20th Century Fox film, or is just 20th Century Fox? Is, is it a Lucas film and 20th Century Fox distributed it? That's basically what it is, in that he owns Star Wars. Okay. That is how he was able to sell it to Disney. Uh, they, it, it's, I don't fully understand all the details of it or who owns the rights to a, to the prints necessarily or release thing because, as we all know, Fox still has the rights to show Star Wars. Disney does not own Star Wars. They own other movies. But Star Wars as a concept and as the co- characters were all his and they stayed his and because he thought – you know he knew – he thought that he had something and Fox didn't. And so he reaped the rewards and he ended up uh, going into – briefly into debt to fund – Empire Strikes Back because it became a much more expensive film than anybody expected. Mm. He hired Irvin Kirshner, as we know, mm. uh, who to this point, it's funny, had a pretty decent career. He wrote, he directed a, a couple of really good movies. He did um, the previous movie he did before this one was The Eyes of Laura Mars with Faye Dunaway, which is a really pretty solid horror thriller. And he's directed some other some other fine films, but an interesting choice. Um, to, to direct the movie, and um, it's kind of funny. We think about it, you know, we've all, all heard about how difficult Harrison Ford can be to work with. Uh, Irvin Kirshner, coming to Empire, had worked with Faye Dunaway, George C. Scott, and Sean Connery. So Harrison <laughs> Ford was probably easy compared to those guys. Um, and as we all know, Irvin Kirshner kicked the crap out of this movie. Yeah. I mean, he directed it within an inch of its life. It is... I would still say it is the greatest sequel of all time in terms of what do you want a sequel to do and that it takes the concepts you saw in the first film, builds upon them, expands them, makes them more interesting, makes them deeper, and pushes the story forward. There are other movies, I'd say The Godfather Part II, Aliens, maybe The Dark Knight that are on that level, but I would still say Empire is the greatest, the greatest sequel ever made. Yeah, I was going to say the, the number of sequels that exceed or improve upon the original uh, you could count on one hand easily. Um, I mean, I could you could argue whether Aliens better than Aliens is just different. You know, they're right, both right. they're both very very good. You know, Terminator One, Terminator Two. You know, one's an, the first one's a pretty good horror kind of film, and the second one's an amazing action film. So it's uh this one it it stays in the genre, and it's just I I prefer Empire. Now here you go. I will say something you know that will put all of your listeners into a tizzy. I prefer Empire over all the Star Wars films. Okay. I'll keep going, though, the part that will really bother him. I prefer Return. In order, it's Empire, Return, then Star Wars. Hmm. Now, why is that? Why, you, why, it's, why Jedi over Star Wars? Most people would not say that, of course. Um, probably because I, when I watch Star Wars now, because I, didn't, because I didn't see it as much growing up, because, you know, like, when I watch the reruns, I typically watch the Empires and Returns. But I, I watch Star Wars, and unfortunately, I see all the flaws. I see the bad acting. I see the bad maths. I see the various issues with Star Wars, and I, I see sort of the characters that weren't fully developed yet, and it doesn't do as much for me. Hmm. Um, Empire is a much deeper, much richer story. The, the, the shots are m- more visually beautiful and, and more believable. You get a lot more dirty tech. I think, in, in Empire than you do necessarily in Star Wars. That's one of the things I love about the Star Wars universe is just all the tech is dirty. It looks used. It's a, it's a dirty-looking universe. It's not like Star Trek where everything's bright and shiny and clean. And I that's in Return of the Jedi is just a wildly fun time. I can sort of like ignore most of Jabba's palace because it's like, eh, okay. Um, but the rest of it is just a wonderful, fun romp. And it's in some ways, it's a lot like a role-playing game. Because there's a lot of things that happen in there that almost feel like a role-playing game, and that, of course, appeals to me, too. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Empire just starts at 60 miles an hour and just keeps going. It never gives you – and it doesn't – never feels rushed. 
but it never gives you time to breathe either. It just goes from one sequence to another. And I remember Roger Ebert wrote a review. I think he gave this Empire four stars. He was pretty complimentary of all the Star Wars movies. But the, the comment he made about Empire was he said, it's a, it's a completely made-up world, but you can't see the seams. And I remember <laughs> thinking that was a really accurate way of describing them because from all the worlds that we see, Hoth, Dagobah, Bespin, these are completely realized worlds. And they are again, you know. I agree. There's parts. Like Star Wars looks more recognizably human. I mean, they're in the desert. Okay, it's you know, it's a foreign-looking desert, but it's still the desert. Um, but Bespin, a city in the clouds, an all-swamp planet, the all-snow planet. I mean, it's it just moves from, and then not to even mention like the meteor showers and all that stuff. It just right. moves from one thing to the next, and every scene works completely on its on its own. And there are, I have, I, I took some notes here for once. Uh, <laughs> there are a thousand little details again that I love about this movie that throws in, like when they're in the they're on Hoth and Han is uh, got that that droid on top of the Millennium Falcon that's like the mechanic droid. Yes, and it does it all, and he and it. He tells it to stop, and he's like, "Wait a minute!" And here go, eh. like it. You, he's talking to it. It's just that little, like I love that little detail of like, let, this thing is actually talking to Han. It, it's got its own little identity, and between you know, like the um, the scene of when Vader is talking to a bunch of the Imperial guys during the during the uh, the chase in the meteor shower, and the one. Mm-hmm. Empire, the one uh, Imperial officer gets killed through a meter, and you see him die on the hologram. You <laughs> yeah, see him like, ah! like, It's funny. If you don't watch that widescreen, you don't see it. Oh, is that true? Oh, yeah, I didn't TV know that. One, you, the pan and scan, you wouldn't see that because they, they had to crop it. But once I got the widescreen one, I'm like, oh, my gosh! <laughs> Love that that guy just – and no one says anything. He just right, dies. Just like, yeah, screw it. Whatever. Uh, in terms of the dirty world, I mean you mentioned Boba Fett, the bounty hunters. The bounty hunters just completely entranced me. As a kid, because I was like, who are all these people? Mm-hmm. And we never see them again, of course, until, you know, probably Dengar has 19 books devoted to himself at this point. But the, all that stuff was like, and I love those. Those were like my favorite figures for the bounty hunter figures because they were just, I, again, like you, I made up my own stories and stuff about them. They were just such wonderfully, just these drop-ins from these super cool looking guys. And then we're just off. We go back to our main story. I mean, it's this movie is just resplendent with ideas and visuals and like I said it just never lets up and the cinematography you know the greens of Dagobah the oranges of Bespin the the harsh black and white of of Hoth I mean it's just it is an incredibly beautiful looking movie on top of all the other you know the dialogue and all the pacing it's just I can't think of a single thing I don't like about this movie well, Lucas always tried to go. You mentioned the the, the different locations. Best uh, Lucas's thing is always to put three different environments in the film. You know, in, in Star Wars, it was desert planet, it was um, it was space, it was inside the Death Star. In Star Wars, you had Hoth, as you mentioned, those three there. Return of the Jedi, it was the Tatooine, it was uh, the space battle, and it was Endor. That was kind of he's talked about that before. Always trying to have three different environments, and I think it works best in Empire. As you said, because it, it, and maybe it is the color contrast. Maybe it was just the way it was filmed, but it just works really, really well. Like you believe, as you said, that Bespin is a city in the clouds, and even the special edition didn't ruin that. They actually enhanced that, and made it even a little bit better when they just cut out some walls and put the clouds behind it and stuff. It's visually gorgeous. One of the, you mentioned one of the scenes actually I wanted to too, believe it or not, where Han is talking to the droid. Uh, I'm going to jump tracks and talk about the acting. This is something to me. I feel like uh, Kirshner 
um, got a lot more acting out of these actors than Lucas did in the first film. And that's the mark of a good director. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look at, like, because you know those sets. I mean, they're not in front of a green screen necessarily as much as they were for the, the prequels, but they're working with ridiculous, non-real things. The fact that Harry, you talked about the droid talking to Han. I want to talk about Han legitimately having a conversation <laughs> with a furball and a, and a droid, and you see it in Harrison Ford. And he's even, it's, the thing that gets me is the distracted moment of it. He's trying to talk to one thing, and he gets distracted by the other. Like, you, hold on a minute. Or, you know, what? I, I can't believe I don't remember the exact words. But um, he has a distracted moment. Mm-hmm. And then Han, again, later on, when they're in the Falcon, and during the asteroid, or after the asteroid chase, and he's trying to figure out where to go, and he's flipping through the computer screen, and he's like, you know, the Noad system. And him and Leia have that little conversation about no investment. Right. And it's, it's completely believable. They, they sound like two people that are thinking through things and talking. There's no forced going to Tashi Station to pick up power converters. It's, it's completely believable. At no point do you not truly believe they are who they're pretending to be. Yeah. You don't, you know, sometimes acting is transparent and, and not here. Yeah, I've often heard people say, you know, oh, that person was so terrible in this movie and, you know, that's what well, they're a terrible actor. A lot of times, yeah, that's the case. But most of the time, it is the director's job to get a good performance. And if the performance from the actor is not good, it's the director's fault for not stepping in. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Harrison Ford, I will admit, in Jedi is really phoning it in. I mean, he is phoning yeah. it in big time. Here, he seems engaged. I mean, this is, this is really Han Solo's movie. I mean, he gets a bunch of great moments in Star Wars, but he comes into the film pretty late. Uh, this is, is – and Luke gets a lot of great stuff to do, clearly. But this, to me, is Harrison Ford's movie. The whole sequence in the meteor shower is just uh, – you know, like th- that's why Han Solo is my hero, one of, <laughs> one of them, because he's just the coolest dude. He's got the coolest ship. He's got the coolest attitude. He, you know, even when he's worried, he's cocky. Uh, I mean, just – he's – He's just like every I, – I, I'm always surprised that Harrison Ford seems so ambivalent about the character as compared to playing Indiana Jones. I mean he – I guess always felt like Harrison Ford, uh, Harrison Ford thought that Han was like a thinner character and there wasn't much more – wasn't much to him. Mm-hmm. But I don't agree with that. I mean I thought he was – you know, had a lot of different sides to him and I thought – I don't know. I just can't imagine you wouldn't want to have fun playing someone so magnetic. I mean, the fact that he punches the ship when it, you know, and he knocks her back up. I mean, in his classic Fonzie moment. Right, I was going to say, but Fonzie had done it for years, though. Yeah, he gets to use a lightsaber, which That's is true. I, that blue. I I don't know. Like I always thought, maybe oh, that was only for for Jedi's. And then the fact, oh no, anybody can use a lightsaber. You'd probably cut your own arm off doing it. Right. But and it is he the only non Jedi in these movies that uses a lightsaber in the first yes. three? Yeah, yes, I think absolutely. he is. Yeah, I, I have a question for you that's along these lines. I was thinking about today. One of the things I was I was gonna say was that Empire really show, uh, really shows Han's journey from being a selfish jerk as he was in Star Wars to being very selfless and standing up for people he cared about and things like that. But then I realized, well, wait a minute, and, and I'm talking myself out of it as I go because I realized there's that moment in Star Wars when they're running in the Death Star and Han and Chewie run after the stormtroopers right to selflessly help Luke and Leia. He does, yeah. It's like, oh, well, he did that thing. <laughs> right. It's funny as hell. But if you stop and think about it, that was a very selfless moment he did. And so it, it makes me wonder, like, well, maybe Han, maybe Empire wasn't Han's journey. Maybe Han was already there. Maybe Han didn't grow an Empire. But 
I don't know, by, by the end, I mean, obviously the romantic piece grew. And man, as a kid, I was pissed. I was really pissed. I did not want Han and Leia to get together. Really? I wanted, yeah, I wanted Luke and Leia to get together because, you know, that was the hero. Luke was the hero as far as I was concerned. I thought Han was cool, but, I, you know, it was Luke. That was Luke's girl, darn it. They kissed and everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I don't think I ever had a problem because it seemed like Luke was so busy on his monk's journey. You know, that he didn't have time for romance. Speaking of which, again, I'm going to jump around, but what the hell. Now, in that scene where Luke takes off to go to, go to Bespin, he, he stops his training. Mm-hmm. And he, God, we haven't even mentioned Yoda yet, for Pete's sakes. Um, Amazing puppet. Yeah. We, again, something else that, that Star Wars yeah, – I'm going to jump back. <laughs> the Empire, Empire deepens the world. It yep. gives us a bunch of new characters that are – reminders of us that we're in a foreign universe. It gives us Lando Calrissian, who is typically what you would see in a regular movie, but we've got Boba Fett, Yoda, the Wampas. I mean, it, it's it's giving us more, and not to mention the worm that the Millennium Falcon just happens to oh, land yeah, inside. Space worm, yeah. um, but anyway, when Luke takes off for Bespin, you know, and he's like, my journey's not, my training's not complete, and there's that whole sequence where Ben says, this is our last hope. And mm-hmm. oh of course, Yoda, Yoda says, no, there is another. That was something else that I was like, I cannot wait three years to find out what that is. That was driving me nuts. But What, what an explosive line yeah. that resulted in so many playground discussions. <laughs> yeah. And in the original script, the, the dialogue is flipped. Ben's the one who says, we have another, which makes no sense. Like Yoda would know, not Ben. I don't understand. Now, why, if they know, if Yoda knows that Leia is the other, which he clearly mm-hmm. does, mm-hmm. Why did they even bother with Luke in the first place? Why not grab Leia and make her the Jedi? You're you're playing the retcon game. Because remember, when 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 Harrison, not Harrison, whoops, when George Lucas wrote Star Wars, Leia was not Luke's sister. Right. I mean the the argument could be the argument still stands whether Leia became Luke's sister before or after Empire. I still stand by my statement that Leia became Luke's sister after. Empire. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, the kissing scene, I don't think they would have allowed it to happen if they knew they were going to reveal in the next movie their brother and sister. Right. So all of that is just throwaway lines. They're just lines to say, you know, throw this, dangle this out there and we'll figure it out for, before the next movie's done. Has anybody ever figured that out in the million words, billions of words spilled about Star Wars since? Has anybody ever figured out why? If Luke is such a flipper to gibbet, which he is, because he's all his life and he looked away, you know, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Leia is clearly much more capable. She's a leader. She's, you know what I mean? Like, why didn't, why didn't Ben go get her? Why go get Luke? He's an idiot. Uh, okay, well. So why not go all, get her? First of all, we did say we were going to stay on point with the movie. But <laughs> not, now we're into fan fiction. But that That's scene fine. is in the movie, though. So, okay. you know. Since we're into fan fiction, there's a whole series of, uh, of, of fan theory talking about how much of a dick um, – <laughs> Obi-Wan is, is. and and Yoda. And the idea is Luke's the more malleable one. Luke's the one, Luke is the gun. Leia may be a sophisticated weapon, but Luke is the gun they can point and aim. Interesting. Okay. All right. So there's that theory out there. The truth of it is, it's just the way George wrote it. Right. Uh, There's, you know, but. Wrote himself into a corner and then he had to get his way up. Right. Yeah. So. Okay. But yeah, that line just used to torture me. Oh my gosh! Okay, the playground just talking. Just like, yeah. Oh. What, what? What is that? You know what's going on? Um, well, it, like, I, I want to share something real quick. Oh no, go ahead. Because we haven't talked about the trailers yet. Um, the the you know they were movie trailers were evolving. I, I have a friend that works in the movie trailer business. You might know him. Um, 
And and movie trailers were evolving at that point and had, had gone from being sort of the 50s B-movie, you know, lots of words on the screen going, the most amazing movie you've ever seen, right. you know, kind of thing, to telling a little bit of the story, getting excited. And the Empire trailers weren't bad, you know, in the scheme of things. Some of them are still pretty watchable and pretty good. There's one that's hilarious. They, they've recorded it two different ways, with one vo- guy voicing it, one with another guy voicing it. And you listen to one of them and you're like, this is terrible. This guy doing the voice work is absolutely awful. And it turns out it's Harrison Ford doing it. That's the one leading into the show. Okay, well, there you go. So the people have just heard it a few minutes ago then. There you go, folks. If you didn't know that it's a big, wild adventure or whatever he says, that's Harrison Ford. And it sounds terrible. But in one of the commercials I saw as a kid before I saw the movie was it shows Luke hanging upside down in the ice cave, right? And you see the pile of snow. And you see the lightsaber starting to scoot towards him. And I saw that in one of the commercials. And I had, before I even saw the movie, I had my uh, Yoda action figure and I had my Lando Calrissian action figure. Because I guess they released them a little bit early before the film, or maybe I saw the film late, I don't know which. And in my mind, as a child, this is all goes back to fan fiction, you know, we can do whatever we want now. I decided that that was Yoda hiding in the pile of snow <laughs> and pushing the lightsaber out of the pile of snow. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought it was. Little boost he needs. <laughs> All right, I'm going to talk about something else, too, real quick. Folks, uh, there is, if you're a fan of this movie, you have got to watch the, uh, they call them filmumentaries. Filmumentaries, yes. Yep. Uh, it's by a guy named Jamie Benning, and it's out there on Vimeo, and it is called Building Empire. Now, he did one for Star Wars. Uh, he did one for Return. He's done one, I think you said, for Jaws and Indiana Jones. for Jaws and Raiders, yeah. Raiders, they're, yep. They're brilliant. Oh, they're wonderful. Basically, you're watching the movie. But it's sort of like, remember VH1 pop-up videos? Sure. It's sort of like that, where information pops up. It's not useless, stupid stuff, but it's like, you know, this scene was filmed by the second unit director after and the first unit director, died. And you're like, oh, wow. And then he also intersplices it with lots and lots of stuff. Like, everyone knows, well, I shouldn't say everyone. I think everyone knows there was supposed to be a Wampa attack in the Hoth base. Right. And there was a scene from that in the, one of the trailers. Exactly. And they have taken all of this footage of the Wampa attack. They've shown they show clips from the comic book where you get to read the panels and it follows along. You see some of the footage they filmed. You see some of the behind-the-scenes footage of them trying to make the Wampa costume work and the guy falls over. Right and, right. and that's why it was ultimately scrapped. They couldn't make the costume work. You see all kinds of stuff. So you're watching the movie, but it's interspliced with that kind of stuff. Alternate audio from, you know, from the album versions. It's, it is a wonder. To, to watch and, and, and be part of. So check it out on Vimeo, again, by Jamie Benning, and it's Building Empire. So yeah, it can't is, recommend it enough. It is amazing how much the Wampa subplot was in the movie. I mean, it was a oh, yeah. big chunk of the movie. I mean, they kept talking about in the, in the comic book adaptation, which is amazing, the original version of the comic book adaptation by Marvel features that tiny little purple Yoda, which is great, <laughs> uh, the, the little three-inch Yoda. Uh, that always confused me. Um, but, yeah, the Wampa subplot was this big thing. And said so that you can see that one scene of, of uh, 3PO tearing the tape off yeah. the door. And in that scene, you see one of the um, snowtroopers, you know, bang on the door. He op- The door opens, and you see a Wampa hand come out and pull the guy in. And you hear the Wilhelm scream, the Wah! thing that you hear <laughs> in every movie. And the only problem, like, I wish that sequence had stayed in the movie, that little scene. 
because I think it would have been really cool. The only part is that scene itself was pretty sloppy. Like that, they needed another take because like the Wampa mm. hand comes out. He looks like a Fang from the Soupy Sale Show. The hand comes out and he pulls the snowtrooper in, and the door slams shut all in like three seconds. And the other snowtroopers just stand there, and they're like, "Wow, nobody's even helping the guy." So it's like <laughs> they just needed another take. But I think ultimately it was right that they excised it. And as much as I want to see extra stuff. You, there is no point where I would say Empire Strikes Back needs to be altered. George, you hearing us? It does not need to be altered in any way because it literally is like a perfect movie. I mean, there's well, just nothing all, wrong with it. Well, out of all the original three, when he did his tweaks and that for the special edition, that's the one that got the least or least intrusive tweaks. Yep. yep. Now, uh, do you have a particular favorite part of like of you know the movie is broken on a ten thousand foot level? The movie is. <laughs> Broken down. For those of you who don't listen to Fire and Water, that was a dick move by my friend Rob just there. <laughs> the movie is broken down into basically like four or five sequ- scenes. You know, Hoth, uh, Dagobah, the meteor stuff, Bespin, and then kind of still at Bespin, but the end sequence with Luke and Bespin. Do you have a, a part that, I mean, I think all of it's great, but do you have one part that you like more than any other? Probably the Hoth stuff. Um, because I. <laughs> It sounds terrible, but I, I like – there's no good way to say this. I like watching my heroes fall. Um, okay. I, li- I like the, the tragedy of it. I mean I start to cry uh, a little bit. and I don't care. Big sweaty man tears. You say whatever you want, folks. Laugh at me. I don't care. But when they – when you hear the crackle in the radio of the guy go, Imperial troopers have entered the base. Imperial troopers have – you know that guy just died. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then Leia – and I get a little mixed up because I've listened to the radio drama. By the way, if you've never listened to the radio drama, you should. It's exceptional. Um, she says, give the evacuation order. They make it a little more dramatic on the radio version where she yells, give the Omega signal. But, like, all of these people don't think they're going to make it out. Mm-hmm. They think they're going to die. And they're all running for their lives. And it just – it's – I don't like it because I'm cheering for the bad guys. I'm, I like it because it evokes an emotional response in me. I, I am sad for these people, and I am fearful for them, even though I know they're going to get out. But it's just like, oh, gosh. You mentioned that scene. It's funny. There's a, there's a bit there with Leia that I love where, again, it's another little character bit where that where you hear the guy go, and Imperial troops have heard of the base. Imperial troops have heard of the base. And she says, you know, uh, tell everyone to get to there. She says, evacuate the signal or whatever. He's like, with the Omega code or whatever. And then as she's getting pulled away, she goes to the guy and get to your transport. Yep. I love that little bit that she's caring. You know, some of these people have to stay behind yep. and do all this. And like you said, that guy's probably going to die. But I love that she thinks of him. Like she thinks enough to say, get to your transport. You know, like she's caring for these people. She's a good leader. She's yep. a really – and I, for one, I'm really hoping she is a big part of Force Awakens because I feel like of the three characters, she got the short shrift. And to me, she's as interesting as the other two. And I hope that she sort of – you know, gets a lot to do in this move in the new movie. Well, they did, they did a lot with her in the books, and I, and I know we're not here to talk about the EU, but at least she got some recognition there. I mean, she goes on in the books to become president of the alliance, right. for a long time, and I hope she's in some position of power in the resistance because I mean, she should be the Mon Mothma character, really. Right. At this point, she should be the central point. Hey, you know, the trailer shouldn't even don't make it look like she's got a lot to do, but I hope that's not the case. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. She's a she's a great character, and she's very good in this one. Yeah, yeah, she's wonderful. Um, for for me, my favorite sequence again. All of them are really great. There's no part that I don't like, but my favorite part is the, the stuff with hand getting put in the carbonite. Oh, that whole that's scene, too. that whole scene, 
the way it's lit, it's all yeah. shadows and oranges, just black and orange. And you, with with the steam rising out of the grates, the, it feels like hell itself. It feels like our characters are in hell. Mm. And with that oppressive music just bearing down on you. And I remember being a kid and just feeling like I couldn't stand it because it was just so terrible. And Chewie's yelling because he cannot stand. He has to stand there and watch his, his best friend get dropped into this carbonite thing. Right. It was awful. It was just so heavy and dark but so utterly compelling. And you're just like – Oh man, you just again the best possible way to cliffhanger your movie and bring everybody back for chapter three because you're just like, boy, the heroes really took it in the shorts in this movie. Oh yeah, and they are, you know, you're just like, I know they're going to win in the end, but they have to come back so far from this because boy, it is looking pretty grim here. It is looking as grim as it can be, and just the fact, and I love the bit with Darth Vader that he just when. They drag Han into the carbonite chamber, and he just goes, okay, put him in. Like, there's no ceremony. No, he does not care at all about Han Solo. He is just a piece of meat to test on. And I just love that he just, just throws him in, and a Chewie flips out for a minute. It's, it's, that sequence is just so perfectly done. How many times in your life have you – I do this all the time where you go – all too easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I do that, you know, it's something I, I flip a switch. It's just, that's what I say. More than once. I, I realize that's a little bit later with the battle with Luke. But yeah. now, you, you mentioned the lighting and everything. I would say the only other super effective, creepy lighting scene that's that powerful, uh, and I'm jumping ahead because I don't get to be on that episode, but is in Return of the Jedi <laughs> when Luke's under the stairs and Vader's oh, goes, right, like, you right. know, your sister. Sister. And, and Luke, what did you say? Sister. Yeah. And Luke comes out. And just starts beating Vader with mm-hmm. the lightsaber, just viciously. Yep. Like that. Those are probably the only two comparable scenes. You mentioned Chewie too. I want to talk about. I have just so much to talk about this movie. Um, Chewie is used really well in this movie. Like he has just a couple of things that absolutely pull on the heartstrings. I mean, that, you talked that about that the scene of cry, the he had, That mournful cry he has when they shut the doors. And, oh and, uh, man, that's when the tears start for me. Yeah. Like, and apparently Kasdan came up with that on set. That wasn't even in the script. And it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. They, Chewie is used to good effect. And they, and they Lucas, I mean, this really, it's a masterful film. They, they managed to put all the right comedic elements in there to make all the little kids love. Yoda, to me, is a real living, breathing person. Like, when I've seen the behind-the-scenes footage of Yoda as a puppet, I like, I, it doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. I mean, Yoda is real to me. When he's on all fours, chucking stuff out of the box. And he's, like, oh, no. he's got the cutest little butt. Yeah, he's got his little, little Yoda feet. Yeah. <laughs> perfect. It's perfect. But, like, kids love that. I mean, they engage on with Yoda in a different level than we did. And R2, and, like, when 3PO gets blasted to pieces and he's in Chewie's backpack, that's hilarious. It's funny. Mm-hmm. I don't even see it as funny now because I'm so in, in the movie. But kids are like, ha, 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 that's funny. You know, and it's, it, it's really well constructed on a lot of levels. And we have not really mentioned it all, and we're going to wrap up soon, but we really need to mention Mark Hamill. We really haven't oh, yeah. talked he, much he about Mark movie, Hamill. He's he? in this movie. I mean, imagine spending a good chunk of the movie talking to a puppet. Talking to a little puppet, and you have to make it believable that, that, you're, that you believe you're talking to a real creature. And it's not. And again, I'm, we're not going to get into this, and I don't want to do it. I'm not going to sequel prequel bash. But you can see in those movies when some actors have trouble relating to something that isn't there, it's really tough. But yeah. Mark Hamill did not have that problem. I mean, part of it because he had he was working against Frank Oz, one of the greatest 
sort of puppeteers there's ever been. But Mark Hamill and Irvin Kirshner talks about this in the commentary track that he does for Empire Strikes Back, where he compliments Mark Hamill repeatedly for being delivering such a good performance that you completely buy that he is engaged with this little three foot green guy. And it's <laughs> it's a real scene and like you do, you kind of forget that Yoda's not a real person. You you just sort of kind accept of, it kind after of a while. Well, okay. You know, uh, it's just said it, it. It's everyone here is just doing really well, and like I said, I think this movie is Han's best moment. I think Jedi Han is kind of off to the side, and it becomes more of um, Luke's story again. And not that yeah, Luke has some great stuff, and we didn't even mention the lightsaber fight. Oh, it's good. The lightsaber fight is fantastic, and again, the beautiful shots of it, mostly in silhouette with just those swords going at each mm-hmm. other, so beautiful. It just it's just so enjoyable to look at on top of and the way that Bespin works is baffling with its <laughs> tunnels that seem to suck you into different places and right, like right. they drop you out like out of an antenna like it it's just like a completely bizarre place that feels terrifying and you know it just like I said, ugh, I uh we just keep going on and on and on because I just can't think of anything that I don't like about this movie. I just remember the, the lightsaber fight. There was one still shot. I don't know if you, your friends went through this too, but there's one still shot during the lightsaber battle with this giant lens flare. I mean, you know, it, it would do J.J. Adams proud. And um, the lens flare actually looks like the silhouette of Obi-Wan. Really? Do you remember this? Okay. No. It's, it's a famous one shot where Luke and Han, I mean, not Luke and Han, Luke and Vader are crossing swords. And like you said, it's mostly silhouette. And right beneath the, where the point where the swords connect, there's a big lens flare heading going down. And it looks like the outline of a guy, and, like a little tiny guy. And everyone growing up, at least in my area, was like, that's the shadow and the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, the never kind of stuff you come up – well, when you got three years to think about Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's uh, – oh, go you ahead. Know what? I'm glad you made that point about Mark Hamill because I feel like I, I talked about how much Yoda was real to me. You're absolutely right. I owe that to Mark Hamill as well. Yeah, yeah. It, you you see it in other movies where people have difficulty reacting to CGI creatures. They can't do it. But Mark Hamill sat there. I mean, it probably did help that Yoda was a real. I mean, he a there was a real person just sitting underneath the platform to talk to, uh, and the fact that Yoda was a tangible thing. You know, you could touch it. You could, you know. It, but still, uh, it's an ext- it's an extraordinary performance, and you know, you don't probably get a lot of credit because you don't think of the Star Wars movies as having necessarily great performances, but they do. We've all seen lots of sci-fi movies and big genre movies that have terrible performances, and you can tell these movies do not have that. Um, well, there are some terrible performances in the first Star Wars movie. Kinda, yeah. It's a very seventies movie. Yeah. Star Wars is very seventies, and Je- and Empire is not necessarily eighties. And you know what I mean. Empire doesn't feel like a movie made in the '80s, other than the haircuts. Well, actually, that's what you know. I, we really do need to wrap up. But like, yeah. how did they make the haircuts not look outdated? I don't know how they manage that. They don't really look that out of date. No, they really don't. They don't. It's a timeless-looking movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one last thing I want to mention, just and this is probably in a, more of an expanded universe question, but I'm curious: Does Lando Calrissian buy into all this Jedi stuff? Do we ever find that out? Han is, Han is completely like, this is all crap. But what about Lando? When Lando meets Luke and, like, with all that stuff, like, when, when, they're, when they're escaping Bespin and mm-hmm. Leia is like, we have to go back. I know where Luke is. And Lando's like, what are you talking about? And then Chewie barks at him. He's all right, all right, all right. And it's like, I would love to know. And there must be a book that covers I... this. But does, is, is Lando like, oh, this is 
BS. Where does he go? Oh yeah, Jedi's. I get it. Sure. I don't recall in in all the books I've read. Now there are some Lando specific books that I haven't read, but I don't recall him being much of a skeptic in regard. I mean, at one point he was dating Mara Jade. Um, Lando Calrissian. Well, it was later retconned to being a, a cover, but whatever. Wow. They, they they were they were doing the horizontal bot. Uh, all right, but all right, all right. Anyway, he's Lando. I mean, come on. Anyway, I would expect, being that he's a gambler, he believes in luck, and therefore would easily accept the Force. That's my take on Interesting. it. Interesting. Okay. He's, so you think he's he's in? He's in. He's not a skeptic. I would think so because if Lando, like again, I think of things in role playing guide terms, but Lando is a gambler first. Everything else second. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, before we – well, I guess we should probably wrap up here because we said we could just keep going on and on about Empire. Is there anything, really else, you, anything else you want to say about it before we go? Fantastic film. Absolutely love it. Um, just check, check out that uh, film documentary. Definitely do that. Yeah, it's, it's a lot well of It's well worth your time. If you love Empire as much as I do, and I don't think that's possible, um, it's a fantastic way to celebrate your love for it and get to watch the movie at the same time. Yeah, it's a 124-minute deep dive. Yeah. Empire minutia. Uh, yeah, the thing I will uh, wrap up on in my last thought about Empire Strikes Back is the great Howard Hawks, who we mentioned earlier, having worked with Lee Brackett, the great Howard Hawks, director of many wonderful films. He once described a good movie as having three great scenes, no bad scenes. And that is Empire Strikes Back. It has more than three great scenes, and it has no bad scenes. Uh, and that's pretty hard to do in any movie. And the fact that uh, that it lived up to uh, a, a societal changing movie like Star Wars <laughs> it says something just remarkable that it that it retains its its legendary status as one of the great films of all time. So, uh, Shag, I already know the answer to this question, but where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> well, this is the first time on the Film and Water podcast. Maybe I'll be back here someday. It's pretty unlikely, though. Probably not. The host doesn't seem to want to invite me until we get to Fandango. Oh, oh, really? Can we do that? We, so you know what I'm going to mention. Someone else sent me a list of movies they want to talk about, and Fandango was on the list. Back off, buddy. I'm like, boy, this Fandango movie with Kevin Costner better be pretty good because two different people have told me they want to talk about it. So I guess I have to see it. Until you said Kevin Costner, they're all thinking the ticket buying place. Yeah, uh, yes, yes it's the dramatic story of ticket right. buying. <laughs> of how the the ticket buying online site was created. It's like the Facebook movie. Anyway, you can find me on the uh, here on the same feed where you'll find Film and Water. There's something called the Fire and Water podcast. Uh, I am one half of that. I would like to say the better half of that partnership. You'd like to. It's not <laughs> you can also find me on all the shows for the most part on that feed, except for Film and Water. Uh, who's Who, uh, you know, all, all that stuff. Uh, I was going to say Power Records, but I guess I'm not invited over there either. No. God, you know, there's a pattern here, Rob. <laughs> anyway, you can also find me on the, on the interwebs at Fi- Firestorm Fan. Uh, that's firestormfan.com. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Tumblr, and uh, something else I'm forgetting. What am I forgetting? Instagram? Eh, maybe I said that? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, knows? Pinterest. That's what oh, it was. Pinterest. Okay. Yeah, you can find me on all those, mainly on Twitter and Facebook, though. And uh, I'm also part of the Legion of Superbloggers, and I'm just, you know, I generally hang around at the uh, at the Circle, Circle K uh, on Saturday nights of the Internet. <laughs> I'm there by choice. Okay. By choice, man. By choice. Uh, well, anyway, thank you so much for doing the show. I do appreciate it. I know we all joke around, but I was really happy to have you on, you know, sort of. And uh, <laughs> a lot of fun talking about Empire Strikes Back. So thank you for doing it. Well, I really appreciate it. Being my favorite movie, I, I couldn't uh, imagine you doing the episode without me. And I will call off the hitman. 
Thank you very much. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Now, uh, normally this is where we would be sign off, but this, this is an episode that, that is a divisible by five math. Uh, this means it's a listener feedback show. So stay tuned for a couple of commercial announcements. And on the other side of that, we will be doing listener feedback. May the force be with you. I got a bad feeling about this. You'd be feeling a lot better, Han, if you were listening to Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast hosted by me, Ryan Daly. That doesn't sound too hard. It's not hard. You just check out Dead Boffin Spies on iTunes, Facebook, or the blog page, deadboffinspies.blogspot.com. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Well, I, I don't know if terror is an appropriate description. It's a podcast that combines everything you love about me talking and some of what you love about Star Wars. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Fine, whatever. Do that after you listen to Dead Boffin Spies. Yoda. You seek Yoda. No, you seek Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast. Check it out. It beats kissing a Wookiee, I would think. <laughs> Fire strikes back. And Burger King comes through again with our all new Empire Strikes Back glasses. Collect a different glass for your family each week. Darth Vader, R2D2 and C3PO, Lando Calrissian, Luke Skywalker. Buy a regular size Coca Cola at a special price and build your collection. All new the Empire Strikes Back glasses only at Burger King. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a drink. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And now we're on to listener feedback. So let's go way back to episode 15, which was Operation Kid Brother. And have a comment from my pal Chris Franklin. He says, well, this was a new one on me. This sounds just dot, 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 bizarre. But I know lots of actors went to Italy to make some rather dot, 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 interesting films back in the 70s. Heck, that's what made Clint Eastwood. I know Sean Connery's son got in on the coattail riding a bit, playing Ian Fleming at one point, I believe. Uh, yes, Chris, that's right. I think he played like the Ian Fleming in like the Ian Fleming story or something like that. So, yeah, uh, Italy was a um, really fun place for a lot of actors in the seventies, especially some of my favorites like Martin Balsam and Lee J. Cobb. If you go look at their IMDb pro- profiles, you'll see like in the sixties and seventies, all of a sudden it's like ten Italian titles in a row. Um, in particular, Martin Balsam, who I know you didn't ask about. Um, Apparently he loved Italy so much that he moved there and he just stayed there and just made movies there. It sounds like a pretty good life. So, uh, Jeff Nettleton wrote in. He says, hi, Rob. Just listen to the Operation Kid Brother episode. Like you, I was introduced to the film on MST3K. 
Love the film. One of the best of the MST3K episodes. I agree. That's a, it's a really, really funny one. One thing you left out about the cast and their bond connections, Anthony Dawson, who is Professor Dent in Dr. No, was also the physical Blofeld in the early films before you got to see his face uh, in You Only Live Twice, my personal favorite. I don't think I knew that. Uh, I don't think I knew that at all, so thanks, Jeff. Uh, he also says, for something similar, Michael Caine's brother Sidney also did a bit of acting. He can be seen with Michael in the seminal caper film The Italian Job, a big favorite of mine. That's another thing. I didn't know that. I never heard of Sidney Caine. That's just really funny, Sidney Caine. Uh, that'll be worth looking at next time I watch The Italian Job. I haven't seen it in a long time. Maybe he should have done um, Joe's The Revenge. Moving on to episode 16, which was our Spectre commentary. Uh, Siskoid writes, I really dislike the theme song, worse since Madonna. Comedic touches. Yes, totally the kind of humor that was a staple of the Roger Moore era, especially. I like the darker edge of the Craig movies. I rate Casino Royale as the best of the entire franchise. Not saying it's necessarily my favorite, different thing, but I prefer the ones with the more grounded spycraft. But they didn't go too far here. The bit where he freezes a goon is great because it's rooted in character humor. Seeing goofy extras, character actors mug at the camera as they react to the super spy world crashing into their everyday lives just gives me flashbacks to the heinous Sheriff Culpepper. <laughs> I don't think they went that far, but but yeah, I see what you're saying, Siskoid. Regarding Leah Sadu, uh, Siskoid says, Gap teeth will always be sexy to me. Blame Chaucer and the wife of Bath. Um, fair enough. He also says... Um, Lots of visual riffs on past films. The Austrian resort brought back On Her Majesty's Secret Service to mind, for example. The Mexican Day of the Dead made me think of the skull imagery in Live and Let Die, and so on. But this could all be accidental. It's just that by now, there have been so many Bond films, they do tend to blend together. Uh, regarding Bond's kids, one, I have a role-playing campaign prepared, which I will one day launch called Bond's Bastards, where each character is the child of a Bond girl, if you know what I mean. Two, I always thought James Bond Jr. was Bond's kid, but researching it now, he's just his nephew. Weird use of Jr. there, Mr. Fleming. Uh, that sounds like a fun idea. I mean, you know, Bond's certainly spread his seed all over the world, so you have to think there's got to be a couple of uh, couple of kids out there with the, with that last name. Anyway, thank you right, for writing in, Siskoid. Uh, Count Druncula uh, just wrote in saying, uh, a.k.a. Ryan Daly wrote, Worst Bond movie of the year. Thank you, Ryan. Jose Rivera says, if I have any complaints, I kind of wish they gave Money Penny more to do as she was really good a field agent in Skyfall. I all wish we got more of Spectre itself. What else do they do? How far is their grasp? We got a taste of it in the Rome scene, but I wanted more. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned that on the episode, but I agree completely with that, Jose. You really don't get the sense of all the stuff Skyfall Skyfall. All the stuff Spectre is got its hooks into. You you know, you hear some talk. But, yeah, you really don't get that, that sense. On, I think it would have been helpful to see that they were, like, you know, really this vast organization, especially with all the tendrils, hence the name. Uh, hence the logo, I mean. He also says, I don't know if this is Craig's last Bond movie. I sure hope not. But if it is, it's not a bad note to go out on. If he stays, I hope we see more Blofeld. I hope we get Bond on an official mission again, and I hope the quality continues. Thanks. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Jose. Yeah, as we said in the episode, I, I'm going to bet that this is not Craig's last. I sure hope it isn't. I think he needs to do one more to make it like an official era. I feel like four Bond films is just not enough to be officially like a Bond era or something. Uh, I guess that's probably wrong because Timothy Dalton only did two, Brosnan only did four, and they count. But I, I like Craig so much in the role. I'd like to see him do one more and then, you know, five. That's a, that's a nice solid number. Regarding episode sec uh, 17, which was our spotlight coverage, Siskoid writes in, 
Lots of verisimilitude, which I appreciated, not just in the unglamorous look of journalism, but in the performances too. Mark Ruffalo's demeanor is kind of anti-filmic and thus riveting. Rachel McAdams has been in a lot of arch and or crappy roles lately, but here I rediscover the actress that so charmed me in Slings and Arrows. Live Sleep Schreiber is likewise understated and unlike his usual movie persona. I did notice the AOL sign and didn't realize the predatory connection. The bell that rang with me is that newspapers were already losing ground to the web, foreshadowing their decline to today's low circulation. In that moment, Spotlight acted as a celebration of what print media could do at its best and signaled its relevance. Yeah, now that you uh, said that, uh, Siskoid, I think that's true. I, I have to admit that's probably more the connection than, than what I thought of. Uh, luckily, it can be both. Um, but yeah, it really um, it is a reminder of you know what news, good newspapers can do uh, when they have the chance. Regarding episode 18, Siskoid once again, which was our um, – 18 was our Blade Runner episode. Uh, and he says, when it comes to Deckard being a replicant or not, I think you have to – I think you have yet to see it enough times, Rob. I think the more you watch it, the more it becomes evident. The big clue is the unicorn dream he has at the piano. It stands out because it's so strange. At the end, Gaff leaves him an origami unicorn. So how does he know that Deckard's animal – that that's Deckard's animal totem? It may be because they activated Deckard complete with false memories, including the unicorn dream, as much on file as Rachel's spider memory. It's a message to Deckard that he won't live long, so he might as well go on the lamb with her. The origami, the line, it's too bad she won't live, but again, who does, i.e. Deckard won't either. And Deckard's expression, realizing something nihilistic about this sign that tells me he's a replicant. Then you have things like uh, the old-timey pictures of his mother, replicants like that, pictures around and the rest of it, which feels more like happy accident, the number of replicants changes in the dialogue, etc. For even more complexity, watch it thinking Roy knows Deckard. He's the replicant that was killed or caught referenced early in the film, and then he was reprogrammed to go after Roy, etc. All that makes sense, Escoid. I still don't want him to be a replicant, but I, you know, it makes sense. Uh, anyway, Nathaniel Wayne writes in regarding the uh, Blade Runner episode. That was a terrific conversation about one of my favorite movies. I came by Blade Runner in a weird way. There was a fairly short now-on-home video for only $29.95 ad for Blade Runner, as well as a host of other films, at the front end of VHS movies growing up. I can't be sure which one it was now. I think it was Labyrinth, which makes uh, no sense, so that's probably wrong. Anyways, seeing that world and the few glimpses of the film really building up in my mind at a young age. When I finally saw it around the age of 13... I was kind of prepped for something big and ornate and possibly over my head, and that mindset going in meant I liked it immediately. I've only grown to like it more as time has gone on. The version my mother had that she let me watch is a weird cut that nobody talks about. It still had the voiceovers and the happy ending, but there was a warning right on the box that it had certain scenes of violence that weren't in the theatrical cut edited back in. I've got no clue what those are. I would imagine maybe just clearer, longer-held shots of the death of Tyrell or maybe Leon. He says, I share Casey's views on the sequel. I was actually kind of excited about the possibility until it was made clear that Harrison Ford was going to be in it. There's no way to include it without answering the replicant question, and frankly, I don't want it answered one way or the other. I love the ambiguity and that it's interpretable. Yeah, and he also mentions, uh, holy, as he says, holy shit, the soundtrack. Uh, there is literally no other film that sounds like this thing. That's true. We forgot to mention that entirely. I, I tend to just forget to mention music in films because that's not where my head is at. But yeah, the music in uh, Blade Runner is pretty amazing um yeah 
yeah, I, I, I will. I really do like Blade Runner now, as I said to Casey uh, on the episode, and I will. I'm totally be up to watching a sequel. Uh, I think I'm. I, I probably will go into it with not a lot of emotional attachment, so I maybe can even enjoy it in a different way than than everybody else who loves Blade Runner doesn't want to see it quote unquote ruined. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to know the answer to the replicant question because I like the the way the movie ends, just uh, the way it is. Professor Allen. Uh, from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, uh, writes in and says, You may have already touched on this topic in the show, but it came to my mind listening to you and Casey discuss Blade Runner. And that is the importance of authorial intent. To extent does it, to what extent does it matter what the creator says about his work after the work has been completed and released? In terms of this episode, you somewhat touched on that in saying that Ridley Scott's opinion on Decker as a replicant did not affect your opinion on whether or not he was a replicant. I tend to fall on the side that an authorial intent is immaterial and that a work speaks for itself, and what I get from the work, what I interpret, what was communicated, is what matters. In other words, if Scott wanted us to think that Decker was a replicant, it should have been clearer. The problem, if there is one, is in that the work of the creator the, is in the work of the creator, not in the interpretation of the work by another. Yeah, that's true. It reminds me of that quote from um, Quentin Tarantino about King Kong, where he talked about King Kong, and he says that King Kong is like a giant sort of like movie about racism and you know he's gone back and apparently the people that made that movie the marion cooper and the other said well that that's not the that's not the movie we intended to make and tarantino's response was sort of obviously decades later he didn't have this conversation with marion cooper uh but literally it doesn't matter if you didn't think that was the movie you made that was the movie you made um so yeah i think it it, it probably doesn't matter what what uh really scott really thought it, it's what he made so thank you for writing in uh, alan uh, Brad, uh, Jeff Nettleton also has a, he wrote a very long comment about Blade Runner, which I really appreciate, Jeff. There's a lot of thoughts, a lot of interesting stuff. I'm just going to sort of cherry pick some of the stuff here. I just got l- done listening to your latest episode with Casey about one of my favorites, Blade Runner. It was funny that you mentioned Marvel Comics in conjunction with this film, as it was how I first got to see it. Now I had, now I had read about the production in Starlog and wanted to see it, but never got the chance in the theater. Movies were a rare treat until I was 16, driving around working a job. Instead, I got to read the Marvel Super Special from Archie Goodwin and Al Williamson. They were the perfect pair to capture the film, but so much of it was confusing. To start with, when Gaff speaks, they just lettered English, not the city-speak verbiage. They didn't even put it in the traditional comic book foreign dialogue brackets. So you see Gaff speaking English, then people acting like they can't understand him. It was weird. Still, the comic conveyed much of the visual delight of the film, especially the Starango cover. Based on what he did with Outland and Heavy Metal, I can only dream of how he would have done the entire comic. He also mentions, as Casey says, this is a film that grows with rewatching. You pick out details you didn't see before, nuances you missed. I still don't buy Deckard as a replicant because, as you say, what is the point? To me, humans have lost so much of their humanity, which is why the replicants are so striking. They are fighting for a life that most humans have abandoned or stopped caring about. In fact, you wonder how the, human would register, the humans would register on the Voigt-Kampf scale. And he ends with, now, if you ever want to go look at Scott's beginnings with the duelists, let me know. This is a film that I've equally devoured since first seeing on the USA Network back in the 80s while home from college. It's one that gets held up in comparison and usually found wanting to Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, but it is one I prefer to Kubrick. I think it captures the period better, tells a fascinating tale of obsession and concepts of honor, and presents a lot of great acting talent. Take care, Jeff Nettleton. Thank you, Jeff. I've never actually seen the duelists. Uh, I, I'm not like a particular follower of Ridley Scott. I see some of his movies when they look interesting. Certainly, seen Alien, and I like The Martian and a bunch of other ones. But uh, The Duelist is not one I've ever tracked down. So, if I ever uh, decide to do it on the show, I'll have to have you on with me to talk about it because you're the only person I know that's, that's ever mentioned it. Uh, Bradley Mann wrote in. He said, "Just a quick note: 
Loving the film and water stuff. This is one of my favorite films. Love the episode. Thank you, Bradley. Bradley also wrote in uh, for about episode 19, Star Wars, uh, where he said, Great episode, great guest, great film, great podcast series. Sorry to be boring, but I like it all. Uh, Brad, uh, Bradley Mann, that's perfectly fine. Uh, compliments are always welcome, so thank you very much. Uh, Chris Franklin also wrote in, and he said, Great to hear you and Graham Off Bailey talk some Star Wars. I like Michael's pitch-perfect analogy on the Luke Han debate. Although I like Tan, I never consider myself cool enough to be him. He is the Fonz to Luke's, Luke's Richie Cunningham. And yes, I just compared Star Wars to Happy Days. Great show. Looking forward to more. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Siskoid comments, I'm one of the guys who likes Star Wars fine and doesn't love it. I will credit it with the following. It is a technical triumph of effects, design, editing, and score. It is immersive, never explaining itself, and just set in that universe. It's your job to catch up. It has created a sense of community in its fans, which is on par with very few other franchises. Uh, he goes on, but here's the thing. I like the original trilogy well enough. Star Wars is groundbreaking, especially in context. Empire is a great film. I even like Jedi mo- more than most armchair fans. It just feels like George Lucas has spent all his time since 1983 destroying these films. His incessant tweaking, making changes that either don't matter and are thus mystifying, or stupid, comedy robots outside Moss Eisley's, or showing he doesn't understand what makes the characters great by changing Han Solo's introduction, or worse of the worst, actually hurt those very mysteries that capture our imaginations, and of which you guys speak so well by over-explaining them in inferior fashion in special edition scenes or prequels. Between those and Lucas's hilarious interviews on the prequel DVDs in which he admits to being completely clueless about everything, it's got me thinking of Star Wars as the work of an incredible technician in spite of Lucas or a crazy fluke. And since one branch of Star Wars fandom is all about the cult of Lucas, that's another impediment to thinking it's the greatest thing since dehydrated mashed potatoes. I loved hearing your love for the film shine through. I don't think it's unwarranted, even if I don't personally vibrate at that intensity. I don't know what planet you might end up on if you do that. It's in an all, in its unadulterated form. It was indeed great fun. I'm expecting Force Awakens to be fun too. Now on to a movie I really do like a lot, and not coincidentally, the least frigged with by Lucas. The one I first saw, The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I, I'm not ready to say that it was an accident. I just think that over time, George just lost touch with what made these things as great as it did. And, and he softened up a bit, and he's gotten in love with the technology. And I think that's really... What's gone wrong? Spielberg has a little bit of that too, but I think he sort of pulled back. I mean, he did that altered version of E.T. where they replaced the guns with walkie-talkies. And pretty much I think that was just universally rejected. And then he himself rejected it. So I I think, you know, Lucas has just sort of aged aged to the point where he just doesn't understand what he did as a young man. And that's true of a lot of creative people, you know. So I I think that's really what the problem is and I'm able to forgive it because I'm able to watch uh, as much as George doesn't want me to I'm able to watch the original films with those DVDs where on the bonus disc the unadulterated versions are put out even though they're not great picture uh, those are the ones I watch I just can't stand all that extra stuff so I I still go back and watch the original ones with the hand shooting first and and everything else and then we got some comments just regarding uh, the show in general one from Chuck Coletta and he says, hi, Rob. I've really been enjoying the Film & Water podcast. I thought you'd appreciate something I experienced early this month as a fellow movie fan. Several years ago, I came to know Eva Marie Saint when she was filming her scenes for Superman Returns. Miss Saint is the most famous alum of Bowling Green State University, where I teach in the Department of Popular Culture. I was asked to come up with an info packet on Superman, Ma Kent, etc., and she could look over before flying to Australia to film her scenes. Oh, my God, that's awesome. FYI, I, I just said that part, by the way. FYI, much of her subplot was cut from the film prior to its release, so she had a glorified cameo. Ma Kent was going to sell the film and marry Ben Humbert. Well, over the years, I've had the opportunity to meet with her and her husband, 
uh, husband director Jeff Hayden several times. Early this month, I joined them on the TCM cruise aboard the Disney Magic. The celeb guests introduced some of their films and do Q&A sessions with the passengers. The best day of the trip was our stop in Grand Cayman. I can't believe it, but I spent the day and had a wonderful lunch with Academy Award winners Ava Marie Saint, Lou Gossett Jr., and Jeopardy! host Alex Trebek. Another highlight was Eva Marie introducing me to Angie Dickinson. Tell Shag she's still hot. You have to tell me. I don't have to tell me. I know she's still hot. One of Miss Saint's movies that was screened was All Fall Down, 1962, directed by John Frankenheimer, starring Warren Beatty, Angela Lansbury, Carl Malden, and Brandon DeWilde. It's an intense family drama that didn't get the attention it deserved. Another of the films you may not have seen is 36 Hours, 1965, a World War II thriller based on a story by Roald Dahl. It co-stars James Garner. If you ever got the opportunity to do the TCM Cruise or attend the annual film festival, I encourage you to do so. It's a must for any film lover. Keep up the good work. Chuck Coletta. Chuck, that's an amazing email. Thank you so much for saying that is – I love that idea of just hanging out with Marie, even me saying talking movies. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, regarding uh, 36 Hours, I've never seen that or I'll fall down, but I really want to see 36 Hours just from your description of um, – written by Roald Dahl and set in World War II and, and with James Garner. That's like – I, I got to go see that. Regarding film festivals, I have never been to a film festival, sad to say, and I really want to, and that is something that I is on sort of the the goal list for 2016, go to a film festival, and uh, I, I'm located enough to get to one in New York maybe and some other ones, but I'd love to go to the TCM one, and I saw a commercial for it uh, playing uh, last weekend before I went and saw a Roman Holiday on the big screen, so... I don't know if it's if it's in the cards, but I sure hope it is. I would love to try. It, it looks like it's a lot of fun. So thank you for the email. It's probably going to help inspire me to go to go to some film festival this year. And then we got a, another comment from Nathaniel Wayne. Uh, hey, Rob, hope you're ready for some feedback about the feedback. Whoa, getting all inception up in here. Anyways, I always find it odd when people say they were shocked by Drew Barrymore's death in Scream. When she, what she was prominent in the marketing and her face was in the foreground of the poster, I knew she was on borrowed time due to where her name was placed. Basically listed all the other actors first and with an added Andrew Barrymore. 99 times out of 100 when an actor has that placement, it's because they're playing a character small to the point that if it were played by an unknown, that name would not be featured on the poster. And in the case of a horror movie, they generally puts them in the role of fodder. In the same way, I knew Samuel L. Jackson wasn't going to make it out of Deep Blue Sea Alive. Spoiler for a 16-year-old movie. Overall, keep up the great work. It's been interesting to see the quite eclectic lineup of movies you've been bringing us so far. And I'm always curious as to what the future will bring Nathaniel Wayne. Thank you, Nathaniel. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I've noticed that something sometimes actors get special credits and you're like, eh, that, that means something, you know, so the way it plays out. I think most people at the time just didn't recognize that Drew Barrymore's special credit meant anything. So, but yeah, and then you go back on it now and you can sort of see it. Anyway, thanks for everybody who writes in. Uh, thank you to everybody who follows the Twitter feed, which is Film and Water Pod over on Twitter. Uh, a lot of people like to retweet and, and favorite and or love or whatever we call it now. Uh, the stuff we're putting out. I, I keep saying we. It's really just me. Um, and I really appreciate that. We've been picking up – I did it again. We. Uh, the Twitter feed picks up like a follower or two every single day and it's been growing and I really appreciate that. I love talking movies and I love getting involved in that conversation. So as I said, um, if you haven't followed the Twitter feed yet, it's Film and Water Pod. Please go and do so. Uh, whenever we talk about the shows, use the hashtag FW Podcast so I can uh, find uh, all the tweets and stuff uh, later on. And if you want to send an email, it's firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. So that is going to wrap it up for the listener feedback section uh, for this episode. I really thank the Irredeemable Shag for coming on this episode to talk about The Empire Strikes Back, 
We are now just a couple of weeks away from The Force Awakens. Unbelievable. Next week, we're going to have Ryan Daly to talk about Return of the Jedi. So that'll be exciting. So everybody, thanks again for listening. Uh, Until the next episode, that's a wrap. Luke Skywalker handles his saber well, Ben Kenobi. You should know, Yoda. Yes, I've been the Jedi Master for 800 years. Yoda and other action figures each sold separately. Beep, 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 beep. It's okay, R2-D2. I've got my laser pistol. Hold it, Luke. They're afraid of your snake, Yoda. You have nothing to fear. The Force is all around us. Yoda and other action figures each sold separately. From Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection. From Kenner.